Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week was Rupert Russell. Rupert's a former academic who then became a documentary filmmaker and author. His most recent film and book is Price Wars, in which he tracks how the meta-crisis that we live in, from the Arab Springs to the US housing bubble to the global financial crisis in 2008, is all linked to prices. How risk is priced in speculatively, how chaos is priced in speculatively to the commodities market, and then how those prices tend to engender even worse chaos than there would have been. Obviously, this is critical uh, when talking about or thinking about the climate crisis. And so we discuss a lot about that feedback loop between the physical world and the financial world. And most importantly, Rupert comes armed with a solution, which is to regulate the commodities market and perhaps how to do it. This is a very, very interesting interview. I had a lot of fun speaking with Rupert. I would highly suggest you get a copy of his book. I so, so, so enjoyed it, not only for revealing the clear picture of how our global financial system actually affects localities and individuals and politics and systems, but also because <laughs> he so clearly explains the world of finance in a way that is really rare today. If you want to know what a derivative is, uh, it's right there on page 30, really clearly explicated. So get your hands on a copy and treat yourself. It's a fantastic read. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love it, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on Patreon, where everyone now has access to the interview transcripts. A huge thank you to everyone who's already supporting the project. Thanks for getting in touch. Most of the coverage on the book because of the war in Ukraine has been focused on oil and Ukraine and that whole dynamic. Mm. But three chapters of the book, or rather three, three and a half, are dedicated to the climate crisis and looking at how cl climate change um, has been a contributor to chaos over the last 10 years, of course, more than that, but in particular the last 10 years, and how the markets have been amplifying it. And that's the when I was writing the book, that was super important to me. And I put a lot of time and effort and traveled to Guatemala and Kenya and even Somalia to report that. Um, mm. And it's great to finally talk about it in depth. Excellent. Why, just um, before we launch into what the book is uh, for listeners, why do you think that part of it has been ignored? I think because the war in Ukraine has just dominated headlines. Um and I think that one of the fallouts from the war in Ukraine has been the sidelining of climate conversations in general. Yeah. We suddenly we're now talking about fossil fuels and gas and where can Europe get its gas from? And maybe they need to import coals. So they don't buy gas in Russia. And then maybe we should be going to nuclear. And, you know, over the last decade or so, there has been a push for a Green New Deal for an energy transition, which would have completely solved this problem. And I find it pretty incredible that that is not only been totally sidelined, but in the UK in particular, it's been actually framed in opposition to the current crisis, right? So you hear conversations around the Conservative government having to abandon net zero in order to kind of solve the cost of living crisis, when of course, transitioning to a it called again carbon zero economy would have would would actually be the solution of it so i feel like the, the climate conversation has been sort of scrambled by by the war in general and actually it's never been a more important time to talk about it all right okay um oh the urge to go straight into debate and then miss the introduction is strong but yeah. i think we should let's introduce the book so it's price wars for anyone that hasn't read it and i would urge anybody listening to go and pick up a copy um, I haven't finished it yet, but I have read read lots of bits of it. And it's so well written. It is so clear. You are the first person that has managed to uh, explain to me what derivatives are and make it make sense. Like, thank you. <laughs> I think Welcome. it's utterly brilliant. So could you just, for listeners, could you just sort of explain the... the, the I mean, a little bit of background about yourself and the concept um, and then how you came to write the book. Sure. So I used to be in academia. I used to be in sociology and my, I specialize in e economic sociology. And 
Um, I did a PhD and I always wanted to write a book about uh, markets and how they go wrong. Um, but I'm also dyslexic and I thought that I'd have a happier career working in documentary film. So I worked in documentary mm -hmm. film um, for close to 10 years. And the latest film I made was Price Wars. So it was a book and a film and it was commissioned by the Franco-German broadcaster Arte. And the question was, you know, how have the commodity markets or how have prices rather structured conflicts over the past 10 years? Now, this question was motivated by some research that I found that suggested that uh, the Arab Spring had been triggered by a sharp rise in food prices. And if you think about the cascading crises that come from the Arab Spring, right, you've got the Arab Spring, you've then got civil wars in Libya, Syria, Yemen, you have the rise of ISIS. All of this collectively ends up creating the global refugee crisis that ends up by 2015 uh, sort of triggering a right-wing populist resurgence right across Europe, across the entire co continent, which accumulates in Brexit 2016 and Trump November 2016. So even that little piece, just that one little price rise in 2010, created a whole cascade of crises. And so I thought this could be a fascinating way of, of looking what had, what had got, gone wrong over the last decade. But what I ended up finding was actually multiple price shocks. So I saw sharp price uh, rise in the price of oil that fo followed the Arab Spring as commodity speculators priced in what they call the risk premium. Essentially, mm -hmm. essentially they're sort of pr 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 pricing in the war in Libya or Iraq, disrupting global oil production, and how those high, high prices led to all kinds of crazy things, the most crazy of which was the 2014 uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. But also the price collapse at the end of 2014 saw the collapse of Venezuela as well. You then see other things which we'll talk about later, which was a collapse in coffee prices in 2018, um, leading to a surge of migration from Central America to the US, creating the US border crisis. And so the reason why the book is called Price Wars is it's essentially saying that all of these either literal wars, like the case in Ukraine or economic crises like in Venezuela, or surges in migration can be linked to kind of sharp shock to commodity prices. And so they, and so the origin of these conflicts is in wars. And so the answer, uh, the answer of why they're happening has to be, well, what's causing these price shocks. And that, as you just mentioned, took me down a complete rabbit hole into financial derivatives, hedge funds, banks, and so forth. And so in some ways, this, the book is a kind of interweaving of two parallel storylines. One storyline is the story of high finance, of Greenspan, of deregulation, of the Clinton administration, of trend followers, Goldman Sachs, uh, algo traders, satellite traders, um, creating essentially volatility of the price of food and the price of oil. And the other side of the story is me going to these places, right? So it's a kind of gonzo adventure to the front lines of these of these price wars to tell the stories of the people who have been affected. And the narrative kind of jumps in between these two. And the climate change aspect of this was something which I originally had uh, centered at the, at, at the beginning. And I then sort of saw it as almost like a, a separate issue in the sense that the commodity markets left to their own devices will create chaos independently of climate shocks, right? You don't need a drought or a, a forest fire to create shocks in prices. Just a rumor is enough, just perception. Mm. Just a change in interest rates or a dip in the bond market can lead investors to switch uh, from bonds to gold, right? But of course, what this volatility does is when it does encounter a real world shock, like we're seeing with the war in Ukraine, or it could be a climate shock as well, then these same uh, uh, speculators amplify its effects. And so my sort of big conclusion from the book on the climate front was that, you know, you don't need a kind of day after tomorrow, you know, superstore, which is somehow, sometimes it's sort of presented, um, or sometimes you sort of get these arguments as well around like kind of Malthusian Mad Max scenarios, often we talk about shortages and food production. It can just be something very small. It could be something very small happening in Central America, maybe it's Brazil. Maybe it's uh, in wildfires happening in Russia as it was in 2010. And this small climate shock gets amplified by the markets. And then that then can create a tsunami of hunger, 
across the world. And so the book is sort of looking at this feedback loop between chaos in the real world and chaos in the markets and how they feed off each other. One excellent introduction. Thank you so much. Um, I loved it. I mean, even the introduction, sort of the explanation of how like the butterfly wings, <laughs> how the flap of a butterfly one wings can cause a, a storm somewhere else. Um, didn't know the origin of that uh, as well before reading your book. There are so many different jumping off points uh, to everything that you've said. I mean, I kind of want to jump in straight in and bridge um, Ukraine and the climate crisis, the war in Ukraine and the climate crisis, because that to me seems to be a big part of the puzzle that we're missing. Um, and it was reading your Guardian article that um, I just found so enlightening about sort of the, the bigger picture. One of the fantastic statistics uh, in your book is the food price index. Mm -hmm. So that societies boil it at 210. Um, so when the food price index hits 210, that's when chaos intervenes or when revolutions start and people try and overthrow their regimes. Um, now, immediately after reading that statistic, I went on to see where we were with the food price index, because obviously Russia, Ukraine, largest exporters of cheap wheat in the world. Um, and so it's vulnerable nations already that are going to be at risk um, of increasing chaos as this war continues on. I mean, what do you what do you think is 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 going to happen? Because I have climate scientists saying on this show that they think food systems are going to collapse, you know, in the next eight years because of the, the big picture of, of what's going on. And then given how you laid out and explicated um, the progress of chaos and revolution because of prices and speculation and given speculation is through the roof right now because of what's going on in Ukraine and equally destabilizing the physical supply chains. Do you think that this war in Ukraine is going to speed up the inevitable of the collapse of Western hegemony? It's a great question. Um, I think that what we're seeing, I think what's something slightly changed from when I finished writing the book to now, which is when I was writing the book, many of the, the crises that have been caused, um, and these price shocks were pretty abstracted from the real world. Right. Mm. And I think this has been true for quite a while. I think definitely since, since the, um, collapse of the Soviet union and like the long 1990s, basically to the financial crisis. Right. So to take a different example to start with, um, we know about the financial crisis. Sometimes it's called the credit crunch in Britain, or it's also sometimes called the housing crisis in the US. It's worth remembering that when we talk about like a housing crisis or a housing bubble, it's not like the houses like exploded in 2007, right? <laughs> like they suddenly were like someone set fire to them. And <laughs> right. This was a crisis that existed inside an intangible, abstract, digital world of derivatives, right? And the way in which our financial system is built upon these sort of digital, now digital pieces of paper. And that sort of, you know, it, the computers, the equations, so to speak, explode at a certain point. The actual houses still remained there, right? So if there were houses built in Las Vegas or Florida, they still existed. And I think this is a really crucial way in which we have to always ask, ask ourselves, where is the crisis? Is the crisis happening in the social game called the market? Is it happening or is it happening in uh, physical distribution or physical production? Mm -hmm. And I think these things are crucial. So in, in the 2010s, most of what I was writing about was these things happening in the abstract world, right? Even though we had a food crisis in 2008 and again in 2010, um, both years and the previous years saw more food produced than any other year in history, right? Yeah. So I'm not going to say any of these scientists predicting, uh, you know, falling crop, crop yields and so forth are wrong. I'm not going to do that. It's definitely not my area of expertise, but it was not something which, it, which organically came from the book in the sense that food production every year was going up. Right. And so why are you having these huge food, these few true food crises? It's because it's the way in which we've sort of elected to organize our food system that was malfunctioning. And that's a crucial point made by the brilliant Nobel Prize winning economist Amitara Sen, who essentially, uh, who essentially kind of 
try to reorientate our understanding of famine away from there being too little food, because often during times of famine, there is lots of food, right? That was his great insight. The problem is people can't afford it. It's mm-hmm. also entitlement, but we could also think of it as just the social game, right? How are we exchanging things? Now, to apply this to the current crisis, it's almost like the return of the real, right? So the last t- 10 years, from sort of, let's say from 2008 to say 2019, we had a whole series of kind of phantom digital crises that were happening in New York and London, which through the global price system were then exported across the world and then did create real world crises and conflicts. With the pandemic, we saw, first of all, the disruption of the physical supply chains. Now we're seeing in 2021, 2022, uh, disruptions to actual commodity production as well. And so now we've got to be really careful and kind of passing, you know, when we're talking about there being a global food crisis or uh, what might cascade from that, what are the mechanisms that are driving it, right? So on the food front, Yes, Russia, Ukraine produce, I think, around 25% of the world's wheat exports, but that's only about 0.9% of global wheat production, right? So many countries don't export or import, they produce their own wheat, right? So, mm. you know, the US is a net exporter and so forth. So actually what we could be seeing, just assume that all of Russia's wheat and all of Ukraine's wheat is off the table, you would see a 1% drop in global uh food production. Now, thankfully, the US, China, other players in the world have reserves, right? They have reserves. Mm. could easily replenish that 1% that we are missing. So in terms but, of... Mm-hmm, yeah, go on. Well, sorry to interrupt, but it's not the uh, US, China and UK that are importing Russia and Ukraine's wheat. It is typically Middle Eastern countries or uh, countries in Africa as well that do not have reserves and do not have the industrial or production capacities and are very much reliant on that wheat. So that 1% is, I mean, that's going to send shockwaves through regions that are already prone to, to, to chaos because of how the markets have organized their sort of sociological infrastructure already. The shockwave is happening in the price system, right? So the first mm. thing, the, the first shockwave that's happening is prices. So before anything has actually been disrupted, right? The markets will price in the future chaos, right? That's why they're called futures markets. Yeah. So the traders are kind of predict what's going to happen. And that is the shockwave. So that was what happened in 2008, 2010, is that, is that these prices are global and in these local markets everywhere, these are called the spot markets, more or less, right? People trading, they look to the futures prices to decide what to sell today. So they're looking at what's the March contract, May contract, the June contract. My point about the being 1% was that yes, it's held by the US and, and Europe and China, but there's no reason why they couldn't, why that couldn't be put in votes and, you know, sent. Yeah, that, but hang on. I was missing <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, there's no reason. But then also, I mean, look at even at the, the, the pandemic. Like, surely we have to um, also look at the, the evidence that we have of the redistribution of resources. I mean, COVAX, COVAX fell flat on its feet. The Western world did not want to distribute vaccines to the, the nations in need. So, I mean, again, of course, we can't say that. But given our recent history of our propensity to redistribute resources, which is very, very nil. Um, I mean, that 1% is going to, in the physical world, cause huge problems, surely. Again, I think I'm going to get myself, might get myself into trouble here because I'm <laughs> not defending the UK or the US. I'm supposed I'm just trying to, di- in my mind at least, diagnose what the problem is. So the problem right now is high prices, right? So the reason why you're seeing problems in Lebanon, Egypt, is the global prices are going up. And then what happens is that it's not just speculation isn't just happening at the kind of hedge fund level, right? Although that's what forms uh, at least global prices in the short term. You've got speculation happening at every social scale, and that includes the local scale, right? So if you're in Lebanon or you're in Egypt and you can see you, uh, you can see global prices rising. What do you do, right? You hoard, right? This is just mm. the incentive is if you think something's going to be worth more tomorrow or more next week than today, then you save it. You put it off the market. 
What does that end up do? That ends up driving local prices up even higher as well, right? Yeah. The speculative hoarding can happen at the local level as well. And, you know, this is why many Middle Eastern uh, countries have attempts at price control, price subsidies, food distribution, and so forth. And so I suppose what I'm trying to say is that you can have a panic at the prospect of there being a food shortage that results in real world food shortages, right? Mm-hmm. This is I suppose, the, the point that I'm, 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 I'm trying to emphasize is that unfortunately the way in which we've created markets, which are essentially social games around future expectations, is that just the fear of, of a shortage or a climate shock or a climate crisis can actually lead to bank runs would be one way of thinking it, but you can have runs on wheat, right? You can have people yeah. trying to order it up and so forth. My point is to try, I suppose the point that I'm trying to emphasize is that because this is a social game, right? It's something which we can, as you know, people fix, right? This is not like a, a problem necessarily of, of, a, of a physical commodity. And so my point is to say that that the U.S. has, for example, a long history of shipping cheap subsidized grain across the world. It was a key um, instrument in the Cold War, right? The U.S. used to do this to countries, especially such as Egypt and Syria, to kind of keep them aligned from the Soviet Union. And so you can kind of imagine uh, a similar resurrection of, of, of that model because it hasn't, it's, it's not that the wheat has run out now, right? Sorry if this is getting too complicated. I suppose I'm no. trying to say we have a short-term we have a short-term shock of rising prices, which is totally real and it's hurting real people, but it's based on this future expectation game. And the expectation game um, is essentially saying that no wheat is going to come out of Ukraine and Russia and the US aren't going to help us. And my only point is, I suppose, that, that there are ways out of this that are definitely not impossible, right? It's not like we have to suddenly start growing more wheat or we have to tell people to eat less. We have the wheat. But we also have this sort of short-term social game, which is kind of creating and, and propagating the crises. And what I tried to emphasize in my book when I was looking at these global prices is they tend to exaggerate the threat. That was what I kept on coming across, is that what they'll always look to is worst-case scenario. And because the way in which markets work through self-fulfilling prophecies, they end up creating worst-case scenario, right? That's the great irony. And I suppose what I'm trying to say is we need to get away from our current way of pricing these things that's much more rooted um, in reality. And then, yes, these cascading crises don't have to exist. Tell me if I'm going uh, too far away from um, the research in your book, but surely now, because of the, the climate crisis, um, and if we take away the meta parts of it, if we take away you know, the energy crisis and we take... No, not the energy crisis. If we take away the economic crisis, I mean, we are still in a position now where um, governments and leaders and, and people are increasingly aware it is going to be, there are going to be physical challenges in the real world very, very soon for us. And there already are in other parts of the world. I mean, in Southeast Asia, because of the huge deforestation, there is, there is flooding, there is not enough land for people to grow food and even if they do have land to grow food the weather cycles have changed so dramatically that it's dropping you know here people are going to be panicking the next 10 years about how how can they heat their homes where are they going to get their energy from where are they going to get the finances to do that so you keep calling it a social game but surely the interesting and terrifying thing about the climate crisis and about the, the physical connotations of that is that this I mean this is different to every other time in history isn't it like the physical <laughs> feedback loop is going to be influencing that financial feedback loop as well. There's two sort of questions in that. So one mm-hmm. is I would say that um, maybe I'll just be quick if I just took you through my climate argument um, and then okay. you can take it apart and tell me why I'm wrong. And that would be, <laughs> that would be great. I'm all up for it. I'm all up for it because it is a controversial <laughs> take. So I'll break you through my climate argument then that I kind of developed in, 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 in the book. So I definitely went into this book wanting to write about uh, food and climate change for all the reasons that, that, that you've mentioned. When I started talking to people in, in this field, I found something out that I found a bit counterintuitive. So we often talk about this idea of, kind of the climate wars or the resource wars, um, these sort of Mad Max style fights over resources. Now those are already happening, right? So I went mm. to Tana, northern Kenya, where pastoralists do actually live off the land, right? Mm. So you haven't heard of goats and you have to kind of 
uh, uh, negotiate access to certain grazing grounds, water sources for your, uh, for your goats. And this is, you often live directly off the milk. You can also trade them as well, uh, for money, but it's, it's really very much you're living off the land. And of course, what's been happening with climate change, and it's been documented by really dozens of different studies on, on this part of Africa, um, is the as climate change makes the uh, rainfall more volatile, more unpredictable, as you have desertification, um, the resources that your goats or your other cattle have to live off the land are shrinking, and that's bringing rival tribes into increasing conflict, right? So mm-hmm. that's why you see this phenomenon. If you see pictures of this, you've got these people with goats and AK-47s, right? Yes. These are the real climate wars. Now, the interesting thing is because it's so difficult, right, um, people are leaving this, are leaving the rural areas, right? And actually these, these the agrarian style conflicts are actually diminishing because of it, right? Yeah. So in one sense, climate change is making the conflict worse because it's making it worse. It's leading to migration out of the rural areas and towards cities. So this kind of idea of fight over resources, A, it's already with us. But the second thing is it may not represent the future of the climate conflicts. It actually may represent our past. And so I sort of did what many of these uh, uh, people do. They migrate down to cities such as Nairobi and they live in slums such as Kibera, Africa's biggest population, one million. And what happens in the slum? Well, then you go from living off the land to living in a market, which is a social gig thing I keep referencing, right? You've got to now have a job to earn money, which you then go to a market and buy food. Now, suddenly you are now plugged into the international commodity markets, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the amount of money you're paying for grain, for maize, whatever it may be that you're eating is being set by these kind of global prices by speculators in New York, London, and so forth. So they're entering, they've kind of left one climate conflict, but my argument in the book was they're actually entering another one. They might not know it necessarily because it's difficult to observe how global markets work. And it was sort of what I spent a huge amount of time myself trying to figure out. And then it's then like, okay, so what's driving these, these global prices? Now I interviewed somebody who had a tech startup who was uh, basically trying to predict harvest using satellite data. So you can get all the satellite data from the European space agency and NASA, you feed it into an AI machine learning algorithm and you can predict the harvest, right? So they've got 20 years, if you like, of quote unquote photos of the world. And you can then correlate that to what, you know, uh, food production was. And then from that 20 years, you can then have a forward looking view of predicting. Now, when they went to go and sell this data to hedge funds, right? Hedge funds are betting on the future prices of these agricultural commodities. You would think having kind of top notch AI satellite data would be super helpful to them. But they came back and said something to these startup people that really shocked them, which was, you know, we don't really care what the real, uh, what the real harvest is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. That's not useful to us because we're in a social game, right? We're betting against other speculators and in speculative games, as, as Kane showed, you really have to, what you're betting on is what everyone else is betting on. And if you have this kind of super secret information source, which no one else has, it's not going to be factored into their prices and it's not useful. So instead, what they had to do, they had to come up with a different model where they skewed all the data to predict what the rest of the market is looking at, which is these government reports. If any of your listeners have watched the film Trading Places, the end of it kind of centers around this Florida crop report for concentrated orange juice. That's literally what they're trying to predict, the exact <laughs> they are in the in, 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 in the film. And what the startup found was if you look at Brazil or Argentina, or maybe it's Oklahoma, or Texas, these kind of local government reports tend to bias themselves in a particular direction. So maybe it's plus 6%, minus 7%. And so what they would do is they'd then adjust the correct data to incorrect data that would reflect these. Now, I spoke to another uh, natural commodity speculator, and he said to me, like, look, the problem with all the satellite stuff is that that point aside, it's not relevant, right? So because there's so much wheat being produced in the world, if there's going to be a global shortage, we're going to know about it, right? You're going to see wildfires in Russia. You're going to see a drought in the American Midwest. It's got to be like a continental scale event to actually dent 
food production, wheat production rather, in a meaningful way. But what's ended up happening is that because these hedge funds, these quant funds, algo funds are looking for any data sources to trade on, they are trading on the satellite data, even though it's actually not that useful. And because everyone else is doing it, it ends up injecting huge amounts of volatility into the market. And so to sort of spell this out, what this means is say you've got, you know, um, a drought in Brazil, this gets picked up by a satellite, fed into a hedge fund, many hedge funds, fed into these algos, and this is like flashing red, right? Buy futures, buy wheat, buy wheat, buy wheat. This higher price then gets transmitted around the world to Kibera, where we have our people who are fleeing one climate war. And what I end up arguing was is that they've actually gotten snared in another war because actually these hedge funds are all competing against each other and they're using sort of satellite data or whatever it may be as kind of super weapons and it's creating enormous volatility. And so you end up going from people experiencing the physical effects of climate change on the ground to experiencing it in a completely different way in this kind of social game where they can be impacted by a climate event on the other side of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my, my point is, is that we don't, we don't need to think about climate shocks creating chaos in a direct one-to-one -one way, right? We mm -hmm. might have like flooding in Bangladesh as being an obvious example of that or desertification in sub-Saharan Africa. It doesn't need to be like that. You can have local shocks creating global crises because of the way that we've constructed our global markets. Yes. If this makes sense. If this makes yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a, this is a systems podcast. So yes, still, I still want to focus though on that question of like, how is it, how do you think now, given the physicality of the climate crisis, whether it's local or whether it has then a, a global effect and then also the, the globality of the markets and how these things now interplay what is that feedback loop going to do to people around the world? It's going to be a huge engine for, for migration. So the, yes. I, a, 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 so the other chapter I did on, on climate change, there's, there's three. I did one chapter on Guatemala. So I went to Guatemala, which has longstandingly been one of the most sort of climate at-risk parts of the world for decades. Right? Since they started creating indexes of countries at climate risk, Guatemala and other yeah. countries have been at the top. Now, the staple crop, or rather the big export crop in Guatemala was coffee. Um, and in 2018, the coffee prices uh, collapsed globally. The global price of coffee really, really shrank. Now, when I went there and spoke to, to sort of farmers, the, the climate change aspect of this had the effect of increasing their costs year on year, right? So because of changes to the rainfall and air pressure, it's essentially promoted a fungus, which they called roya or rust, right? Which grows on the plant and you've got to buy fertilizers to get rid of the rust so that you can actually sell your crop. So the climate change thing has been this ongoing, long-standing, steady increase in cost for them. You then have an external market shock of a collapse in coffee prices in mm -hmm. 2018. Now, these farmers fund their, their harvest by taking out loans from local money lenders. They essentially mortgage their home and their land to get a loan charged around 10% interest a month. It's absolutely extortionate. Yeah. So they're extremely sensitive, right? You've got rising production costs from climate change. You've got interest going to these local money lenders and your whole livelihood depends on this international price. And what happened in 2019 was that essentially the low price meant that equation didn't work for people. So people were suddenly, not only did they not make money from the harvest because it was below cost, they couldn't pay the interest on the loan. So you actually, you lose your entire farm, right? So this is yeah. absolutely devastating for people. And so that is why you suddenly saw hundreds of thousands of people from these coffee producing regions go to the US border and this became the US border crisis. And this is the way I think that we need to think about these things in the sense that you've got the one thing that all chaos creates is migration, right? Whether it's a war, drought, a, a crisis like the one I sort of just described in, in, in Guatemala. And these have an effect not only of creating human suffering for the people who are having to move, obviously, but it also creates, unfortunately, political crises often in those countries, right? So the UK now is doing this like totally bizarre sort of sadistic plan to send people to Rwanda. The US you had 
this phenomenon of so-called kids in cages trumps theatrics of kind of cruelty. And so the way in which I sort of think about, the way in which I think we have to think about these climate shocks is the way in which they upset these 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 social games that we're playing, right? These sort of markets, which these foreign modern farmers are already caught in a kind, they're already caught between like the local money lenders and the international markets. Now they've got climate change to think about. And the metaphor I tried to use in the book for this was the edge of chaos. It's, it's, it's a phrase that comes from chaos theory. Unfortunately, billions of people live right on the edge, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need a big climate shock. You don't need a physical, it may make a compelling photograph to see somebody's home sunk underneath water, but it could just be a slight change in rainfall that leads mm-hmm. to a 10% drop in your income. And you might think 10%, mm-hmm. that's not too bad, right? Maybe you cut back a little bit. Maybe you've got savings. Maybe an NGO can come in. But if you're mortgaged up to the hilt, that 10% can actually be totally ruinous for you. And then what happens is, is that chaos through migration ends up going into sort of other countries. So what you end up getting is these kinds of cascading effects. And so the point that I'm really trying to emphasize is that, is that when we think about climate shocks and, 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 and the climate crisis, we have to ask ourselves, are, is the social system, and by that I mean like the political system, the economic system and so forth, that we have on earth as human beings, is it, is it, is it working to fix this problem or making it worse? And yeah. sadly, it's got this amplification effect whereby the costs of climate change are actually amplified. Without even getting into the cause of climate change, the negative impacts, unfortunately, are being amplified by, by the global market and the political systems that we have. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that kind of brings me back to my, my first uh, question which we sort of danced around, which is, you know, because I think what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine is, I think that 1% of, of drop in wheat production is going to have a terrible effect because of the bigger picture of the fact that it's countries where that are already on the edge of chaos or climate crisis, that are experiencing droughts, that don't have the capacity to create their own food production in the way that perhaps they did 10 years ago, and then are equally being squeezed by a market that wants to financialize everything, um, even the green economy. Um, yeah, I agree with that completely. I suppose what I was trying to argue, maybe in 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 artfully, is that is that it is that that is not necessary, right? There are steps that we could take in the U.S. and Europe to ameliorate that. Let's talk about those steps. So I suppose that was maybe inartfully put. It's not a necessary crisis. It's the way we've chosen to construct our economic system that's created a crisis that we we don't need. All. And I think that is such a fantastic term that I don't think I've come across before and question which of these crises are necessary um, because the term crisis is so it's alarming and it should be it should be alarming this is a very alarming uh, period in history but nonetheless to ask whether or not it's necessary really does put the emphasis back on the fact that so many of these problems are absolutely man-made anthropogenic in their nature so let's talk about solutions then what what can US Europe uh, UK do to to combat what's coming, to change how we're structuring our, our social game, our markets? Well, I think we need to root them in reality. As I said, you have these, the way in which speculation ends up working, and there are many different speculative strategies. And over the course of the book, I kind of interview different speculators and go into each one and try and figure out how they work and, and, and what their effects are. But the end result from each of them tends to be an amplification effect, right? So you, you tend to be amplifying um, what would have been a small dent in prices, right? So say there is a drought somewhere in the world, you would see a dent in supply that would just underneath normal circumstances create a slight rise in prices. And the way in which we're amplifying them is turning that small rise into a huge rise. That's actually relatively easy to fix. It could be done at the stroke of a pen. In fact, they try to do it as part of the Dodd-Frank legislation, I think in 2011. And essentially what what they were doing, and unfortunately it wasn't implemented or still hasn't been implemented, was to change who dominates commodity markets. Mm. So from Roosevelt's era up until 2000, when Greenspan and Clinton um, did away with those regulations, the commodity markets were more or less rooted in the real world, right? So what that meant was that the people forming the prices were the people who were trading physical commodities. Right. So that could be farmers, oil refineries, oil men, jet airlines, maybe not in 1936, but now these are jet airlines. People who are dealing with real commodities in the physical world who are rooted in them. And these are the people who are 
whose trades are really forming price formation. And you had 20% of the market for much of the 20th century was speculators. And they formed an important uh, role, which was to provide uh, liquidity, right? So all that really means is that you're kind of pumping in a bit of capital into the system to make sure that a farmer's always got somebody to sell his or her wheat to, right? Because many of these businesses are quite cyclical. And so you just want somebody in there to kind of grease the grease the wheels. And they perform as an important function. And I think the market's actually performed re uh, remarkably well. When you think about, uh, just take oil, oil, for example, you had two external shocks in the 70s, the OPEC embargo in 1973, the Iranian revolution in 1979. Once those died die down from the kind of early 1980s, right the way to the early 2000s, uh, oil prices are incredibly stable. At the same time, we saw a Gulf War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rise of the Asian Tigers. There was real world volatility, mm. but the markets remained pretty smooth. Now, we could go back all the way back to the 1990s, right, at the stroke of a pen, and we could at least calm down some of this volatility. Now, the problem with even markets that work in an orderly way, the way an economic textbook may want them to, <laughs> there's no guarantee that the uh, price being sold on them in, in a market can be affordable to somebody. And that's why you're seeing a lot of NGOs now just do direct fund transfers, right? So this is kind of crucial. We need market interventions on the consumer level to make sure that, you know, poverty never reaches a point where people cannot afford to pay to pay the prices. There's a third aspect of this, which I think is gaining steam at the moment, but I personally think is very ambitious, which is to have a kind of new Breton Woods style agreement. So the original Breton Woods agreement, at least in Keynes's full formulation, had three institutions. Two of them we end up living with today, the IMF and the World Bank. There's actually supposed to be, at least in Keynes's formulation, a third one that would uh, regulate commodity prices. And it would do that by having stores of actual physical commodities. So these stores I was mentioning being held by the US and Europe, they could be held by a kind of third party so that when the prices do go up, they can kind of act as a guarantor. And because so much of markets are around expectations, if you have an expectation that a third party can always step in, a bit like with bank runs, right? If you know the Bank of England or the Fed can step in and support banks, it kind of, that self-fulfilling dynamic ends up sort of becoming extinguished. So there's a lot of push now amongst some policy circles to create a kind of global commodity stabilization institution. Uh, the fourth one is one that I'm in fact most interested in, which is looking at regulating kind of global commodity prices directly through the Federal Reserve, right? So the Federal Reserve is already mandated to regulate inflation through interest rates and other, other, other tools. Uh, there's some interesting research I've been seeing that shows that in fact, the mandate of price stability could be extended through the commodity prices. And because the US is such a large commodity producer and because commodities are denominated in US dollars, the US has a massive outsize uh, role that they could play in terms of the global markets. So I think the, the, the key answer to your point is to sort of summarize it is we have to clamp down on speculation. We need to make sure that people can always afford the international prices, whatever, whatever they may be. And third, we need to sort of have some kind of institution, whether it's the Fed or a new institutional one that can kind of have a reserve that can kind of create confidence in the market. And also at times of crisis, kind of release those reserves. So regulated capitalism. Well, we always, I mean, not to get into debates in terms of what is capitalism. I mean, mm -hmm. markets have always been around, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. The question is, uh, are markets allowed to rule, right? I think mm -hmm. that's also a big theme in my book is, is a look to the rule of prices. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose what these institutions would do will be to say, no, markets aren't ruling. Markets can have really important roles to... Uh, literally move food around, right? You want the price system to coordinate, um, high prices sometimes if they're not too high, be a good thing because it incentivizes merchants, independent actors to get the food where it's needed, right? But what we don't want is prices or economics to be in charge. And that was sort of the idea of this sort of idea of Breton Woods, where it came from was it was about saying, we're going to put politics in charge. We're going to have a policy and the policy is going to be 
people need to eat. That's going to be the political imperative. And we're then going to design our economic institutions from that imperative. At the moment, it's the other way around. Right now, we have uh, prices are in control, economics is in control, and that's dictating politics. You see this most clearly in Germany, right? Where their where their dependence on Russian natural gas and economic dependence is really limiting what they can do geopolitically. Of course, not just Germany, but the whole of Europe as well, because they have this dependence on gas, and that's been also a political decision of theirs, right? Merkel, decades of German administrations were very happy to have uh, cheap Russian gas. And what's happened is it's ended up proving very expensive, right? As our friends in the climate movement have pointed out, right? Because, uh, the price of fossil fuels is artificially low. It doesn't contain the externality. Climate people want to emphasize the cost of the environment, the climate crisis and so forth, but there's also political costs, which they're now discovering as well. And so my take on this is that we need to reorientate the way in which we've been thinking about politics, economics, and put politics, democratic institution making first, and then designing economic um, arrangements that fall from that rather than the other way around. I may have misunderstood something here, but it seems to me that that is exactly how the world is organized. Uh, to pull a quote from your book, somebody that you interviewed, um, the invisible hand of the market is invisible because it doesn't exist. That prices do not form themselves. It is the speculation of people that run the markets and are profiteering from the markets, very much individuals and organizations and institutions. So arguably, if politics is any form of social organization, that it is politics that is dictating an economic framework. And the economic framework is simply that we live in an oligarchy and everything is built for that oligarchy to amass as much wealth and power as they can. Absolutely. And I think, I suppose... What I, what I meant to say is, is that it's been like a voluntary surrender, right? So mm -hmm. the decision to put markets in charge is a political one, right? Mm -hmm. That is a political decision, but it's not one that can be unwound um, immediately as the Germans are sort of discovering. They had two decades to make the right choice more than right. They've had decades to make the right choice politically. A green energy transition would have been my preferred option. In 2012, Donald Tusk, then the prime minister of Poland said, you know, to sort of paraphrase, um, you know, the whole of Europe's security now hinges on Russian gas deliveries. This is like totally crazy. He was ignored despite rising up the ranks of the European Union. No kind of, despite these sort of dire warnings, Putin was shutting off gas to uh, Georgia and Ukraine through the 2000s. The Soviet Union did this routinely to the Eastern Bloc to enforce compliance. But there was a political decision. I sort of think of it as like a surrender to markets. And there was a promise, right? So back in the ye olde days of the 1990s, you know, there was a promise like with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, for example, made the Bank of England independent, right? What is that? It's basically saying we're going to hand over the most important levers of public policymaking to economic technocrats, right? These are going to be the neutral umpires who are going to set the rules of the game that the market and the state has to, has to abide by. That was a conscious decision that they wanted to do. They believed, I think sincerely, I think they're wrong by the way, but they believed sincerely that like by making the Bank of England independent, they would be rewarded by you know, market confidence, and this would lead to sort of investment, and then this would lead to an economic boom and so forth. The way in which I sort of describe it at the end of my book, because these really end up becoming the villains by the end of my book, is the central bankers as the umpires of the social game, the ones who are often changing the rules when it suits them, but who are supposed to be informing them, is that I sort of compare it to the independence of the military, right? So in many of these countries that we looked at, I looked at with the Arab Spring revolutions, such as Egypt, right? The whole Arab Spring revolution in Egypt was about the military getting rid of Mubarak and his son and maintaining control of the country, right? So often in these, in these dictatorships, there's a kind of uneasy relationship between the military and the autocrat. And in Egypt's case, you really see it's the military who's in charge, right? So the military has dominance over politics. I see it as being just as crazy or just as, as what we have with central banks, right? You could make all the same arguments for making 
military decisions independent of democratic governance, right? You could say, well, politicians like to start wars because it's going to make them popular right before an election. They like to do sort of saber rattling and this can kind of rally the nation around the flag. But we would just recognize those arguments as insane, right? We would go, yeah, I mean, kind of in some version of reality that that does happen, but like, we're not just going to give the generals, you know, unquestioning power over the security of our nation. But yeah, that's exactly what we've done with our, with our central banks. You've sort of had this kind of voluntary surrender of power. And it was one that was done with either no or very little um, public debate. And it's only in very extreme cases like the Eurozone crisis where a light is really shone on this. But most of the time, this is sort of happening, uh, happening anyway. Sure. Um, but the political infrastructure and I mean, arguably sort of just general social structure um, that has been developed and fed, you know, that feedback loop of the economic institutions and the political institutions, which has ultimately created, you know, oligarchies instead or like transformed democracies into oligarchies. Um, Surely sort of creating more of those independent institutions then to like regulate the market is kind of feeding into the same problem, perhaps, potentially, rather than giving um, decision-making capacities back to the people, which it sounds like it was in Roosevelt's time when it was the people that were actually trading the commodities that were then regulating them. Well, it's a very difficult question. I mean, I don't have any <laughs> how to create uncorruptible institutions. I think, I think that's <laughs> a very interesting historical tidbit that I came across was that one of the big people who actually opposed central bank independence was Milton Friedman, right? Oh, in really? In 1962, he was this total madness to give all wow. this power away to a bunch of bureaucrats, right? Wow. And he said, well, who is going to staff these banks? It's going to be built from finance. And mm. it's going to lead to, he didn't call it financialization because the term wasn't really around then. But he basically said, this is going to lead to the domination of a kind of financial interest group. Of course, that's exactly what happened. It's exactly mm. what happened, right? It's incredibly prescient. And that's also why, you know, during the early 1980s, Friedman ran a kind of personal campaign to re replace Paul Volcker with a computer, right? That was his whole thing. You just want a computer that's basically deciding the money supply so that we won't have this problem of kind of, you know, corruption, mm. undue influence and finance. Historically, a blip in history, he actually came around and like loved Greenspan. So he wasn't entirely consistent in his own views. Okay. But even but even Friedman understood uh, understood how interest groups would sort of take over these. I suppose that, you know, we're not going to get out of a global market economy. That's just something which is just seriously just not going to happen right now. We have to trade. Commodities are produced by certain countries. They are traded. We need to figure out a way to make those prices fair so that people can afford them, their stability, people can invest. I wrote another article back in January about the war on drugs and climate change and telling uh, my some advice to climate activists was, you know, if you want to fight a war on a commodity, there's really only one way to do it, which is to replace the demand for it, right? Because the war on drugs has been a, a global war fought by uh, almost every country in the world. And it's completely failed. War on drugs completely failed. Mm -hmm. um, the war on fossil fuels will not even have remotely that level of international cooperation, right, for obvious reasons. Um, and so fossil fuels are obviously far more entrenched in our society than drugs are. But the hill to climb is so much h h harder. And the drug example should be a warning. And my argument was that, you know, supply follows demand and you have to cut demand. And so rather than necessarily thinking about ways to sort of control energy prices. We really just want to get off energy prices completely, right? We want to, we want to transition to an economy where we're not having to import natural gas or coal or, or any fossil fuels. And I think this is where, this is where I think the climate movement really needs to assert itself. I think it's taken a back seat these last two months from the war, but it really needs to assert itself of saying like, look, if we have a fossil fuel economy, we're going to keep funding Russia. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Kuwait, the Gulf states, these are not great actors in the world, unfortunately, mm. right? There's a, 
library of political science and economic research on the resource curse. We know these countries are not just bad to other countries, but they're also bad to their own people. The way in which we can correct this is by the green transition, which is what climate activists have been arguing for the last 10 years. And so that's also what I would really sort of, rather than, I take your point, you know, regulating, regulating fossil fuels isn't the answer. We need to sort of get off fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, fossil fuels is such a tricky one because if you stopped the use of fossil fuels overnight, like 4 billion people would die. And the capacity for renewable energy was simply... We have a lot of this argument on the, on the podcast that um, transition isn't enough. It, there also needs to be reduction um, because we will never be able to produce enough renewable energy because uh, fossil fuels is just such an explosive source of energy. And so to do that in a, in a market economy, essentially to say we need degrowth, we need to contract our demand in a market economy is like a logical fallacy. Um, which kind of leads me on to one of the final questions I wanted to ask you, because my personal interest professionally is in the green economy uh, and greenwashing and exposing all of the nonsense. How can we use, and there might not be an answer to this, um, but from everything that you've researched and you've seen, how can we use prices to better understand or perhaps identify the schemes in the green economy that are worth following and investing in and getting excited about, and those that are just speculative scams trying to make money off of people's panic. If people are, if there are speculative scams, actually, I probably think on net benefit, a good thing, right? Because that means that people think there's energy heading in that direction and people sort of want to People kind of want to jump on it, like crypto, NFT. It's like, if there's a thing, there's energy towards it. And like the other thing to remember about not just market economies, but any economies, it's like a huge amount of waste, right? So like for every great idea, there's going to be 10 failed ideas. And so you need this kind of excess amount of capital. I think the way in which I would think about this is, sorry, just to answer your question quickly and I'll move on, is, <laughs> is that... From what I understand it, you're really the expert on this, but you know, the prices of re renewables, things like solar have dropped, right? So that price argument is now running in the, in climate activists favor. It now really is just looking like, as you sort of mentioned earlier, like an oligopolistic, you know, cartel oil companies, these sort of zombie institutions, which on a price level make no sense. And. The hope is, is that just letting the market do its thing will just destroy these companies, right? Because if it's so much cheaper to produce things by wind and solar than fossil fuels, then you let the market do its thing and it will sort of be destroyed like the fax machine before it, right? You will just see these as antiquated, not useful uh, technologies. I'm obviously grossly simplifying here. But the way that I would see in terms of where to put investments. I think what we're going to end up seeing is the political economy of this um, is tricky. So the bigger problem I have with what you previously just said is that any increase in prices or sort of degrowth or contraction is politically radioactive, right? Mm -hmm. So um, politicians, poll numbers are very highly sensitive to commodity prices. In fact, my whole book's about this. My whole book is showing how the price of food and fuel, and also, by the way, housing, have outsized, amplified political impact. So even small changes in the price of, of gas in the US can have big changes on approval ratings. And so what you've had from the Biden administration, really from day one, is saying, we're not touching price. We're not doing carbon pricing. We're not doing anything that we could get a Julie June style protest, which Macron favored in 2019. So that sort of piece is just out of it. You've also got, unfortunately, in the US case in particular, political gridlock, right? Biden's climate plans were too small. Now they're not even happening at all. What I think we're going to be looking to is central banks. I think central banks are the sort of the so-called money supply of the West and they're very, very, very concerned about the climate crisis. They're very concerned about climate change creating another financial crisis, which takes a while to sort of get your head around. Mm -hmm. um, and because they have all been uh, scarred, had their careers made rather by the 2008 financial crisis, this is really what they spend their time thinking about is how, is how to print, prevent the decline of financial asset prices. Mm -hmm. Of course, 
if you've got equities in the stock market invested in companies like US GDP is on the coast, right? That is a climate risk, right? So that's exactly how they're kind of game planning this out of like how you can go from a flood in New Jersey to the collapse of local industry to a banking crisis and then a US or global, or global financial crisis. They've been really focused on this since about 2015. And by the way, these bankers, it's not a conspiracy. They just like hang, hanging out with each other. They have conferences, they share ideas, right? So all the central banks are now like producing these like green uh, financing transition mitigation plans. And you're going to start seeing, we've already started seeing it, but we're going to start seeing a lot more, I think, of green bonds and green finance. And this is where the capital is going to go. So we're going to start seeing a ton of capital moving into this sector. And then, of course, on the other side, you're going to start seeing tons of investment coming in, BlackRock, asset managers, other kind of investors. I'm a little bit more optimistic. It's a bit like, as I kind of maybe said at, at, at the beginning, it may be that we need to kind of throw uh, way too much money at this. And yes, a lot of it will be greenwashing and scams, but my hope would be it will, some of it will kind of land where it is, it is productive. And even if the world wasn't full of scams and grifters, which it is, um, that process would happen anyway, right? Like not everyone's idea is necessarily going to be a good one. Even the most enlightened state planners sort of couldn't figure that out. So if I have an optimistic side of me is that, well, if we are ruled by central bankers who are in some ways insulated from these uh, political demands or rather unpopular political debates around net zero and so forth, that their own kind of uh, self-interest um, will lead them to kind of pump money into that sector. Yeah. And I, and I think that is what we are um, increasingly going to see. Like right now we're seeing the, the smartest of sharks getting there first and thinking, how can I make a profit off of this? I think for me, the main concern with, again, looking to the market to fix the problem that the market essentially created um, is that whilst we've got some time here in the West to, to figure out what to do and will be largely buffered in many ways by some of the effects, you know, already those at the front line um, of climate change around the world are being... I mean, are just losing their lands and losing their food productions and, and losing their, their his, his histories and cultures. And um, I think that's a dev devastating effect. And I think the first interview I've done where I've been cast as the defender of the market, I'm usually sort of seen as like the arch, arch critic <laughs> of capitalism and so forth. But I've ended up playing the role of kind of defending markets a little bit. Um, maybe I've got Stockholm syndrome from talking to too many kind of hedge fund people, and that's fine. I, I accept that. I mean, I I'm not a political person. I'm not in in the sense that like I'm not an activist. I'm not somebody who comes up with policies, or you know, I don't run like an NGO pushing for these things. I'm not involved in that world. I suppose what I've tried to do in the book is identify almost like um, a glitch. In, in, in the game, right? And the glitch is this deregulation in 2000, right? So my argument is, is that a lot of the chaos we see in the last 10 years just wouldn't have happened if we had stopped yeah. the regulations in 2000. And because they're regulations, they could be changed tomorrow. Yeah. A lot of the things that we're, that, you know, where if you talk about these things that are about either building nuclear power stations or building wind farms, this takes forever. It takes investment. We need, as you say, we need changes right now. There are people suffering right now. And I suppose there's an optimistic message from my book. It's that one piece of this, which is the extreme volatility of the global prices, which is how the majority of people are suffering from either war or hunger around the world, can be solved tomorrow, right? Obviously, that's just the beginning of something. And that's, I suppose, all I'm saying is it is, it is just the start. But, you know pulling hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty and hunger is a great thing to do. And we should Absolutely. just do that for its own reason, even if there's nothing happening, happening the next day. Yes, of course. Absolutely. And a very important message to end on. Um, <laughs> I think because um, I in no way reading your book got any defense of, of the markets. I think it's an extraordinary <laughs> analysis of the markets, of that invisible hand, which isn't quite invisible. Um, and also paints a great picture of how the global financial system or model impacts on localized levels. It's it's a really, really great book. And everyone should go and get their hands on a copy. 
Rupert, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. Thanks so um, much. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk about climate stuff finally because it's obviously so important. <laughs> yeah, so 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 important. Tell me my final question then: Who would you like to platform? The last point that I was making um, around central banks and greenwashing is really the real expert on that is Daniela Galber. Do you know her? Her work? No, I don't. She's the she's the real expert. I'm just a I'm just a kind of preface reader. All right, <laughs> I'm a little smart enough really to understand that she really gets into the nitty gritty of. Mm-hmm of macro finance and greenwashing and, 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 and how this is all going. I don't think she has quite as an optimistic point of view as I do. I have a pretty uh, searing critique of this, and I'm sure absolutely deservedly so. I suppose my only piece of optimism is, if not central banks, then I don't quite know what else. The, the political gridlock, especially in the US, things are a little bit better country to country, although it might not feel like it. The political and the gridlock in the US is, I think, what worries me the most. Yeah. It doesn't matter how brilliant your policy is or how you've just got some people, you know, who we don't even need to name who just say climate change is a Chinese hoax. And that's the start of the conversation. Right. We're fortunate that the um, US institutions, be them the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or the Fed, while far from perfect, and again, I don't want to be cast as their defender either, are full of technocrats and economists and political scientists, many of whom care deeply about these issues. Mm. And although they might be constrained by the institution they're in, I think a lot of them are doing really great work. Um, and my hope is that if politics is in gridlock, hopefully these people can kind of break through um and you know get some green financing to those who need it although i think daniela might have a different point of view i would definitely defer defer to her so i i I hope she agrees to come on excellent rupert thank you so much it was such a pleasure speaking with you likewise thanks having me rachel if you want to learn more about rupert's work i've put links to his website over at planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast i would also suggest you go and get a copy of price wars If you liked today's episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters. This work just wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.